My name is Valina Chakarova, and I'm the director at the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy based in Vienna, Austria. My work includes research, consulting, and lectures on the global system transformation and the geostrategy of global and regional actors. This podcast is produced in partnership with Bharat Vata, India's leading podcast on politics, policy, and culture. And this is the final episode for this year, which is why I have not one, but two very special guests. Jeff Snyder is head of global investment research at Alhambra Investments. He has become famous for his Eurodollar university lectures and asserts that even to this day, central bankers don't fully understand the working the workings of the Eurodollar system and its, its implications on the global supply of US dollars. My second guest is Emil Kalinowski, CFA, uh, and he is employed in the metals and mining industry, writing about how socioeconomic and geopolitical trends affect the supply, demand, and price of base and precious metals. His present focus is also on the 2007 malfunction of the monetary system and its continuing disorder. So Jeff and Emil have a podcast called Making Sense, and I can really recommend it to you. Welcome to this uh, podcast, gentlemen. Thank you, Valina. We're very happy. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait to get into all the details behind the euro dollar and how it affects the, the rest of the world. And in order to do so, we need a little warm up. So my first question is a very basic one, uh, and that is, what is the euro dollar system? Could you give us a very short <laughs> historical overview and also present us with the current state of affairs, specifically given the fact that political stakeholders, uh, in fact, do not have any idea about it? Jeff, please condense 177 episodes into about <laughs> yeah, 60 seconds, okay? I was going to say a brief overview is usually like four or five hours, so <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll do the brief of the brief of the brief overview. Essentially, okay. Eurodollar itself is, the term Eurodollar means not European or anything like that. It means, Euro means offshore. So essentially, it's a currency system, largely denominated in U.S. dollars, but run by global banks that engage in all sorts of currency transactions. But again, offshore, which means outside the not just the United States, but outside most regulatory jurisdictions. These are global banks located in the city of London, the Cayman Islands, Tokyo, all over the world that essentially engage in monetary trade with not really any money in it. These are virtual currency ledger balances that are traded back and forth in an interbank format where you know, global banks are financing trade, financial flows, basically everything that you would, you would want a global reserve currency to do, except it's, it's, again, it's this offshore US dollar currency. So it's not really the US dollar, it's an offshore outside, you know, separate bank-centered bank uh, monetary system that, that has undertaken the roles of the global reserve currency. And it's done it. It's been doing this since the 1950s, and it really took over from Bretton Woods in the 1960s in sort of an ad hoc, behind the scenes kind of way. 
So authorities and central bankers around the world really haven't played much of a role in shaping or influencing what goes on in the eurodollar system. And that includes that when it broke down in August of 2007, creating the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, which very briefly, that was not a one-off crisis in 2008, 2009, which you know, this, this global dollar shortage has continued to this very day. So the brief history is that we have offshore money, outside regulation, central banks not really involved, central banks really don't study or even care much about it, at least they didn't, and it broke in 2007 and has never been fixed. That's the key, Valina, is that it's, when we say offshore, it's the light regulatory touch, right? It's in the Cayman Islands, but it doesn't involve any people in the Cayman Islands. The regulators say, you can do whatever you want or lightly regulated. Just make sure all your customers are off our shore. Same thing with the city of London and all the main uh, advanced economy money centers. It's this light regulatory touch and there's supposed to be a firewall. Whatever you banks are doing, that's fine. It's God just can't touch British citizens in the city of London, right? But guess what? Bankers are interested in making money and they're very creative in making ways and making that money get through that firewall. And that's part of the big story is that eventually this euro dollar offshore non-national currency system took over and infiltrated and started to fund global economic activity far, far, far more than the national ones onshore did. And, it, and people during the 60s and 70s were commenting about it in, in the mid 80s, they were writing, wow, this is out of control. Maybe someone should be put in control of this. Shouldn't we look after this? And uh, Jeff can explain why this was never really looked after or never put under control, if it even could have been. And I suppose everything would be fine. It was this creation of money and global economic activity was growing fine, fine, fine. But all good things must come to an end. And they did in August of 2007. And ever since then, we haven't had enough money being created by these offshore centers to fund the level of economic activity that we've become used to for three or four generations. That's the problem. That's why the last 14, 15 years of economic activity and growth has been awful. Okay, but then of course, I have to ask for the European audience, what is it got to do with Europe and the Euro currency? Is there an, any link to it? Um, and could you give me also uh, an example, for instance, with the great financial crisis, whether it also played a role in terms of, uh, you know, once when um, there was a contagion throughout the whole financial and economic system, whether it had also uh, played, uh, whether it has played a role for uh, saving uh, the banks. Well, Valina, it, it didn't play a role. It was the global financial crisis. The global financial crisis was essentially the euro dollar system breaking down and leading to basically a textbook monetary panic all over the world. That's how it became a global financial crisis because the euro dollar isn't really just a dollar. It's not just about the United States. It's a global reserve currency. And the banks who operate in that global reserve currency system include a healthy portion of European banks. So if there's a problem in the euro dollar system, that means there's a problem in the banks in the system, which includes a healthy dose of European banks as well as banks all over the world. But even so, you know, regardless, 
the fact that it's the world's reserve currency that goes into that had this uh, major breakdown and crisis meant that there was not going to be any place that you could hide from it. If you have a global monetary breakdown where that money is absolutely vital and crucial to, as Emil said, economic growth and financial health all over the world, you have a breakdown in the reserve currency. That's not just a problem for America or American banks. It's a problem for Europe and European banks because the European banks, like the American banks or Japanese banks or Cayman Island banks or wherever, they're the ones doing the monetary system. So the monetary breakdown had no borders. It wasn't, it wasn't like a dollar or an American problem. It was a worldwide problem because what we're really talking about here, euro dollar means global currency, global money. So the global monetary breakdown is obviously going to affect everybody who uses that global money or who participates in that global monetary system, which is why you had so much crisis in Europe, in the UK, as well as in America and other places around the world. And it's again, you know, the, the, the problem developed again in 2010 and 2011, where the euro dollar breakdown was kind of focused on European banks who were experiencing repo collateral shortages based on the, the, the sovereign debt problems in Southern Europe that then transmitted to the rest of the world because it's a bank-centered system, a problem for European banks or a problem for Japanese banks is a problem for everybody. It's a global network that, that unless the global network is functioning, it's, it's going to be a global issue. Jeff, we never answered Velina's question about how does it deal with Europe and where does that name Euro dollar come from? I'm going to throw it back to you. But before I do, I just wanted to highlight a couple of things. First, because central bankers are focused on their national borders and what happens nationally inside, who is in charge of this international currency creating system? Nobody. Everyone says, well, I'll take care of whatever problems there are up to my border. But the currency system is offshore. And then my second point, very quickly, Jeff is saying that this is this euro dollar system, the strange thing is the world's reserve currency. But how could it be when we all know the US dollar is the world's reserve currency? Well, actual economic activity, no one's actually trading US dollars. No one's actually moving US dollars back and forth. What's being traded for goods, for services, for financial assets are ledger balances, digits on bank balance sheets. That's what's being traded. And those digits are predominantly denominated in US dollars, but they can be in yen and euros and all manner of other currencies. So what the real reserve currency is, is just a bank balance sheet, a ledger balance, a, a checkbook that we're all used to, but on a much bigger wholesale level. Jeff, I'm throwing it back to you. 1955, the Soviet Union, uh, Midland Bank, the Euro dollar. How did it happen? What? We don't know. We don't really know. That's right, Emil. But we know that there was a continental U.S. dollar market at some point in the 1950s, which is where it acquired the name euro dollar, a, a term that was coined by, uh, uh, I forget who it was at the Financial Times in 1960s, when they said, look, there's this robust bank-centered U.S. dollar system developing in the latter half of the 1950s that has started to undertake all the roles of a reserve currency. What is a reserve currency? Reserve currency is essentially a monetary intermediary between vastly different systems. So if you have a common currency that's available in all sorts of places around the world, you can then easily and fluidly and efficiently transact between these very different places. So it's a very useful tool. And people think and people have been told and people have been led to believe that the U.S. dollar has been the, the successor to the Bretton Woods system. And 
that's only the case, as Emil was just pointing out, in terms of the denomination. We call these things the U.S. dollar, but there's, as he said, there's, there's really no dollars here. These, these are banks trading essentially what's called money of account or ledger money or ghost money, where it's fictional currency that banks accept. So there, it's a U.S. dollar denominated, but it's really bank money. It's really funny bank money or virtual bank money. And uh, because it's been offshore, because it's been, as he said, lightly regulated or the light touch of regulators, it's kind of developed its own ecosystem to take under and, and perform these monetary roles of a global reserve currency. So getting back to what you were saying, Valina, why, why do people in Europe care? Because this is the world's monetary system. It's really, you know, it, it's called Euro dollar because of where it started, but it certainly didn't stay there. I mean, it proliferated all throughout the world because the Euro dollar system in its, in its heyday was really good at performing these roles of a reserve currency. It was really excellent at doing that just in the nick of time when the global economy started to grow tighter and globalization started to become more and more of a general theme around the world. In fact, you could make the case, and I would make the case, and I don't want to, I think Emil would agree with me, that without the euro dollar system, without this global euro dollar money, we don't have the globalization wave of the last half of the, 20, uh, last half of the 20th century. Those two things all go together. So if we don't have euro dollar function in the 21st century, certainly the 2010s and 2020s, global economic growth that depends on tight cooperation and globalization, that becomes not just impractical, but maybe even probable to the point of it's a really big issue, uh, not, just, not just for the US, not just for Europe, but for pretty much everybody. Well, um, I have several questions uh, that uh, are immediately, immediately arising from, uh, from, from these statements. First is, um, was actually the euro dollar, uh, euro dollar system accelerated following the collapse of the Soviet Union? Was the Soviet Union incorporated within this uh, system at all? While knowing that, uh, of course, uh, a lot of these networks were actually globalized following the collapse, what's the case with the Soviet Union before 1990? Before 1990, yeah, the, the, uh... The euro dollar system was sort of, I mean, the, the, one of the origin stories of the euro dollar was that the Soviet Union, fearing confiscation of American authorities during the, you know, the, the immediate Cold War, the early Cold War period, decided it would rather hold dollar balances because it needed dollars to participate in global merchandise trade. It decided it would start holding those dollar balances in European rather than American banks or even Canadian banks. So all, the Soviet Union and Russian money has been a part of the Eurodollar system. Of course, there's been, there was all sorts of political intrigue, Americans trying to keep the Soviets out of the dollar system using you know, various sanctions and various political levers that they've, they've pushed. But by and large, the, the Eurodollar is the global reserve currency system. So anybody who's trading in, uh, in the, any global fashion, if you're involved in the global economy, you're going to need to connect to the euro dollar system at some point, even if it's some kind of clandestine sort of way that I think the Soviets were forced into before their collapse in 1990. It was sort of tangential. It was sort of, hey, let's try to find a backdoor way to acquire U.S. dollars in whatever way we possibly can by doing business with this banking system that can then connect to the, to the euro dollar system. So there was always that connection, but I don't think it was ever enough for the Soviet economy to truly participate in the way that certainly the Russian people probably wanted. But it was, you know, if you're in the global economy, there's got to be some euro dollar connection somewhere. Mm -hmm. Jeff, can I 
expand on that point. And you tell me if I've got this correctly, just to help the audience sort of understand how, where does this money come from? So originally there were actual dollars in Europe and the idea maybe the Soviet Union earned it through trade or there were American service members earning dollars. And so they were depositing them in banks. But what do banks do? Once they, eventually someone got the idea, you know what? I can start making loans and other investments based on these dollars. And what do banks do? They say, I promise I'm going to be able to be make good on this. And that's how we've started from this pile of dollars to banks saying, I promise I can get the dollars for you. We can do it, promise, I tr trust me. And it developed from there this promise, this trust that they will be able to get the dollars. And eventually they got rid of the dollars, but that's how they were able to create dollars out of thin air from this small little seed uh, after the Second World War, wherever those actual dollars started from. So Jeff, tell me if I'm, because I'm trying to get the audience to understand where, how money is being created literally out of thin air. It's a promise. It's just confidence that I will be able to, as a bank, to provide those dollars, and and then it just got carried away after decades. Did I get that generally right? Yeah, and we're we're also skipping a whole lot of steps here in the interest of time and, and, and brevity. That you know, look, this is a comprehensive system. It's a comprehensive ecosystem that's not just about currency. It's about securities trading. It's about financial flows. It's not just about merchandise trading. There's all sorts of things that banks do, and all sorts of ways that banks engage in this type of behavior. Which, as Emil just said, is they're creating dollar, U.S. dollar-denominated resources that doesn't involve actual physical currency. In fact, that's one of the reasons why this offshore system developed and proliferated as it did in the 50s and 60s, because physical hand-to-hand -hand currency or gold bullion is very cumbersome and inefficient. It's much easier to have an electronic payment system based on a common shared ledger than it is to have to wait for somebody to ship in actual physical cash or for the Soviet Union to get its hands on physical Federal Reserve notes and then deposit them somewhere and then have them leak into the system somewhere else, the banking system recognized that there was a need for these U.S. dollars all throughout the world to engage in this more co closely cooperated globalization across the economy. And it decided that it would, it would finance or fund or you know, make the monetary resources, the currency resources available for that system in the most efficient way possible, which was essentially, again, skipping a lot of steps to create these U.S. dollars out of thin air because they're all based upon this ledger system. Mm -hmm. And foreign banks are, in fact, obligated to uh, pay in U.S. dollars when the deposits are withdrawn. They cannot pay, for instance, in their national currencies. Well, you can do whatever you want. The, the bank will charge you an exorbitant fee for doing something like that. But yeah, if you if you have a U.S. dollar deposit as, say, a European citizen uh, of any country in Europe, you're, you have a U.S. dollar deposit, a Novo deposit with a whatever bank, the bank is essentially obligated to pay you in U.S. dollars. But the bank knows when it set up the deposit that the chances of you actually asking for physical cash are so very low, it's not really a problem. And even if, it, even if you did want a physical Federal Reserve cash, it would be happy to deliver it to you for whatever fee is specified when the account was set up. But I think that's a key point. I think that's what Emil was trying to get at here was that there's no physical cash here. There's no need for it because nobody actually uses or wants or wants it. Hand-to-hand -hand currency really fell off as sort of a you know a main form of monetary exchange 
back in the 1910s and 20s, and by the 1930s and 40s, the inter these interbank markets had become the primary means of monetary flow throughout the, you know, as a lifeblood through these national economies and the international economy. So in one sense, the interbank nature, this, this you know, this non-currency virtu virtual ledger system of the euro dollar system took what was already happening in national banking and took them a step further to uh, fill the void left over by the inherent flaws in the, in the Bretton Woods system. So, you know, money and currency itself has evolved as have banks and the way that banks interact with one another, which gets us back to the, you know, one of the other main points that we talked about here, light, regula light regulatory touch and why, why aren't central banks involved in this? Because it was banks that had done all of these things independently of regulatory scrutiny, independent of statutory authority in all these national places. They were basically given a blank canvas in which to rewrite how money and banking is done, and they did it. They actually did it. And when central banks started to realize in the 50s, 60s, and especially the 70s that this stuff was going on out there in the euro dollar system, by then it was too late. It was too late to forget putting a stop on it. It was too late to really understand deeply what was going on. So essentially, again, skipping a lot of steps here briefly, the central authorities throughout the world just threw up their hands and said, okay, this is what happens in the euro dollar system. It seems to be working. It seems to be working very well. We're just going to take a very hands-off approach to it and just let it do its thing. We'll try to influence it where we think our national interests are involved. But by and large, you know, for the 80s, 90s, and middle 2000s, it was see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Um, I have the following question. What happens if uh, United States uh, stop uh, running deficits and can no longer back the US dollar as, uh, or let's say the Euro dollar system as the global reserve currency system? What happens? Can the Euro dollar actually crash and under what kind of circumstances? Well, the euro dollar did crash, number one. But number two, it's not really tied to the merchandise trade. That's, that's kind of a traditional way of thinking about you know, capital account deficits and things like that. These euro dollars are created independent of the U.S. current account or merchandise deficit. Now, the merchandise deficit does contribute to the amount of dollars that flow around the world. But you know, the euro dollar essentially fills in the gaps where it needs to, or at least it did before 2007. So financial flows and merchandise flows outside the United States or outside the current, current account deficit of the U.S., they're sort of independent variables here. So if the, if the U.S., for example, in the middle 2000s had run a lower current account deficit, a lower merchandise deficit, it wouldn't have made a, it wouldn't have made a difference at all because the global banks that were creating these euro dollars from thin air, out of thin air would have just created more than, they, more than they would have otherwise. So the two things are kind of independent, even though... You know, if you can look back in uh, historical scholarship in the early days of the, the euro dollar system in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there was a lot of attention paid on the U.S., the growing U.S. merchandise and capital account deficits because back then they still thought of the monetary system in very traditional terms of U.S. dollars physically flowing outside the United States when that was already not the case. So merchandise trade, euro dollar system, the availability of U.S. dollars, what are called U.S. dollars outside the U.S., these are really independent, independent factors. 
So that, does does it mean that we can have another national currency, you know, uh, being being pushed forward as the global reserve currency? Let's say uh, Chinese uh, yuan is the next uh, global currency, but we still will have uh, the euro dollar system uh, remaining intact. Yeah, I, the Chinese yuan, the, the Chinese don't want that either. But you know, there's there's various there's there's various capacities that the monetary system needs to needs to undertake and and various roles that need to be performed in order for it to take over as a reserve currency. You can't just flip a switch and say one day, hey, Chinese yuan is now the reserve currency. It doesn't really work that way. As I said. Reserve currency is essentially an intermediary. It's a middle currency between a lot of a lot of various different systems, and so it has to be available and acceptable in all of those places. And the way it becomes acceptable is, you know, various reasons. Uh, the U.S. dollar was acceptable because everybody thought U.S. dollar, post-war era, those two things go together. But the way it's made available in all those places, that's really where the secret comes in. That's the euro dollar system and all of these banks operating within it that were able to redistribute and spread the monetary resources all over the world. So if the Chinese wanted to make the yuan a reserve currency, they've got a whole lot of work to do, a really very, you know, very substantial, significant job ahead of them to develop the infrastructure, even assuming they could get other places to want to use their denomination as a reserve currency. They still have to develop the infrastructure to be able to get their currency in all of these places in sufficient volume and dependability and predictability that it's acceptable in a, in a wide enough, uh, across a wide enough area of the, of the world. But uh, let's let's uh, take the worst case scenario of a kind of a violent uh, systemic decoupling uh, that's being uh, launched uh, by both the United States and China uh, in the long uh, run uh, decoupling that would also mean that this kind of globalized networks would be actually separated. What happens uh, to the euro dollar system in that case if China is completely decoupled or to decoupled to a great extent from the global economy, financial and monetary system. I don't know how the Chinese would accomplish that because they have more of a need for US dollars than anybody else around the world. So their dollar problem is essentially they have dollars and they need dollars. But assuming that's the case, I mean, historically speaking, that's really kind of what, what uh, modern economic history says is that we don't have a single, a single global reserve currency. Usually they're currency blocks. In fact, the euro dollar system developed out of, you know, essentially what was a British trade, uh, global trade block. So, it, you know, maybe just naturally as the euro dollar system breaks down as it, as it is, regardless of political consequences or any kind of political struggles, that, that may be where we're going anyway, but I still think, you know, the Chinese have a major hurdle, even trying to create a regional or specific currency block where CNY or the Chinese yuan operates as the, you know, much narrower, but, you know, regional currency, reserve currency, they still have a, a lot of work to do in developing the infrastructure that is already available to the entire euro dollar system. So that's one reason why even though the euro dollar system sort of began malfunctioning 14, almost 14 and a half years ago, it's still the only one around because it is that substantial of a task to try and replicate and replace it. To offer a realistic alternative to the euro dollar system means a whole lot of work that I don't think most people really appreciate what's involved with it. 
And it's, it's, it's something that, you know, that you can't do it overnight. It's going to, it's a long-term project. It's a very long-term project in all of it, all of the various phases that need to come together in just the right way in order to work. And so the Eurodollar has, you know, decades of experience, decades of practice already built up inside of it, even though it doesn't really work all that well nowadays, but at least has all of the minimum, the, all the minimum requirements are being met by it. So to have a competing, a realistically competing alternative currency system is, you know, it's a huge Herculean task. It's mm -hmm. a complex system. It's almost a natural ecosystem that's grown out of human affairs and society and the transactions. And you would, I think you can't just build it. You have to let it grow. And that takes a long time. I would think you would have to de-link, uh, go into reverse, go to a much simpler state, national currencies, uh, currency blocks, and then see it build up naturally from there. I would imagine it would be very difficult to recreate anything comparable to a natural ecosystem. You know, are humans able to create natural ecosystems just on the fly? No, it, it would take years, decades. Yeah, which I mean, Emil, your point is essentially, let's say we wanted to build a competing internet. Would we do it tomorrow? I mean, it, it, the internet wasn't something that we just, oh, you know, a government put, uh, put together a blueprint and started building it. It was sort of thrown together through various uh, uh, natural processes and organic capacities over time. The Eurodollar looks like a computer network. When you really break it down, uh, the, this global monetary system looks like a computer network because that's essentially what it was built up from, the capacity to communicate. So essentially, that's the kind of the task that you have is you're essentially trying to say, Hey, let's build another competing internet from scratch, and it's 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 not so easy. It's really it's a it's a huge task. Uh, but still, of course, uh, we should uh, consider uh, also scenarios where um, United States and China would not come along, right? So I'm interested in finding out what happens then. Uh, the Eurodollar system thrived and is thriving because of globalization. But in reality, these are US-led networks. And of course, the last 30 years, uh, witnessed unprecedented uh, globalization, not only in the financial world, in the financial system, or in the monetary system, but in all other uh, relevant socioeconomic systems. So I'm interested to find out what are the main vulnerabilities of the Eurodollar system for, amid growing geopolitical turbulences, amid uh, emerging bifurcation of the global system, and also uh, given the possibility of uh, a systemic decoupling. Well, I would disagree that these are unprecedented globalizations. I would say that they are very precedented. We've experienced, from my count, seven globalization cycle since uh, the 1800s. And so we've seen this before several times. We've seen unprecedented, incredible transportation, communication, interaction, integration with the global brotherhood and sisterhood of nations. We've done it over and over and over. And it's a cycle that breaks down and goes into reverse. It goes too far and people rebel against it. And so this is just yet the next next vintage of this globalization cycle that we've experienced for 200 years. And the Euro dollar system, as impressive as it is, can absolutely be controlled if the politicians have the will, just like with previous events. So 
national emergencies would, would uh, focus the minds of politicians and the populace to implement drastic policies. I'm thinking perhaps financial repression, capital controls, those sort of policies could uh, put everything into, uh, into a pause, into a deep freeze, into reverse and break down the system. And then from there, a new one would be created after some period of time because humans, you know, we, we love to make money. And if bankers can make money out of thin air, they would come up with a way to work in the new system eventually. But that would be the key. Politicians seeing some national emergency and implementing laws and regulations that constrain the free movement of capital and put banks under political, explicit political, direct control. That, that I think, could uh, reset the system. Now, I think that's an important point too, Emil. The, it, what you're talking about is essentially a clean break from the way things are. In other words, that right now, I think there's this, this perception that politicians in the United States in particular are in control of the euro dollar system as, as it is right now. And that's not the case. In fact, as we said, mm -hmm. they've been taking a very hands-off approach to it for ever since the beginning. So we're talking about 60 years where you know, everybody thinks the US dollar is controlled by the Treasury Department or the Federal Reserve, but in actual practice, it's these banks operating around the world. So what, is, what Emil is saying is that, look, if push comes to shove, then politicians can intervene in a way that they have never during the euro dollar history before. And even that would be kind of difficult because you're talking about banks operating outside of their own jurisdictions. So we're talking about a radical shift in political behavior as it pertains to money, which would have to, I mean, we're, we're talking about something that precipitates that it would be, have to be something substantial. But as it, as it stands, even today, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Department, authorities in Europe or around the world, they really don't have much influence or really any influence on the euro dollar capacity and what's going on inside of it right now because they really don't have any, any, any mechanism to understand it, let alone influence it. So if they want to take control, they're going to have to do so in very explicit and very uh, uh, sort of uh, serious ways. Just like we did in the last worldwide depression, tariffs, trade wars, capital controls, bank regulations, bank confiscation, holidays, confiscation devaluations. Yes. Uh, it would have to be an intense political involvement in the economy and the financial system, but they can do it. Do they have the will? Do they have the purpose? Do they have the motive, um, the courage? <laughs> the courage. Do they have the capacity? Do they have the wisdom? Do they have anything, no. anything besides partisan or partisanship? Well, and the political price will be too high. That would mean that huge. no politician would actually be willing to pay such a high price uh, to take uh, this kind of decisions. That's why I'm say, suggesting that it would necessitate a crisis, a national crisis whereby everyone starts rowing in the same direction instead of fighting with each other because there's a much bigger threat outside of the boat. And so once everyone is focused on that, then they could start working together. I was talking to Jeff the other day about the number of laws and regulations that Franklin Roosevelt passed in his first 100 days. And because it was a national emergency, I think it was 150, 160 plus laws and executive orders in the first 100 days. 
and compare that to what's happening in the United States now, where it's taken months, months for them to pass a single infrastructure bill. I don't even know if it's passed yet. Uh, no, so that, but because then focused alignment, national emergency, it could be done. Never waste a crisis. I think someone said that. It was either the Mahatma or Emmanuel, uh, Emmanuel Ramon, what was his name? Rahm Emanuel, yeah, yeah Rahm. Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, Valina, that's part of the problem we have too in this modern, I mean, going back to Emil's earlier point that globalization, you know, these, pe these periods and cycles of globalization, as his research has shown, there's usually a monetary component to it, monetary evolution, monetary cooperation, an evolution or a step in banking. These things are all closely tied together. And in the past, that was easy. Those, those factors were easy to identify because money was relatively simple. Pretty much everybody knew what was going on. The problem that we've had in the euro dollar era is that it's hidden. Not only have authorities taken a hands-off approach to it, if you tell, if you say the term euro dollar to the person on the street, they, they have no idea what you're talking about. So money today is very remote from personal experience and even political experience. The politicians don't really understand how the system goes either. So to Emil's point that he's making now, it's hard to make the case that drastic steps need to be taken because hardly anybody knows that this monetary system exists, let alone that it's malfunctioning. So it's difficult to, to generate the political kinds of political capital that's required to take even a minimal step to say, hey, we should even look at changing the reserve currency system because it doesn't seem to be working. Most people will be like, what are you talking about? The US dollar seems fine. It goes up in value, which is another point of confusion. People don't understand what drives the US dollar, how it works, what this Euro dollar is, how it works, what's really going on in it. So if you can't connect the dots between what's going on in the monetary system with the, and connect them with undesirable political and social outcomes around the world, the task becomes even that much more difficult because, again, nobody's really making sense of what's going on and what's really going on in the world. Instead, we're all dazzled by QEs and monetary policies and things like that so that we, we stop asking the real questions, which is, how does this system actually work? And is it really working for everybody involved in it? Valina, forgive me for jumping in, but I just wanted to underline, circle, and highlight what Jeff said about the relationship between money and globalization. He said that it was closely related. I will go so far as to say that it, it is globalization. It's indispensable. It is the first step to globalization. It's the surplus of money, the creation of money in advanced economies, advanced money centers, that then begin to flow over the borders because if there's so much money, then you start globalization. Then you start all the incredible things, investments in technology and communication, all that comes with money. And the way we can identify that this is true is because each of the globalizations, except for World War I, ended when there was a crisis in an advanced economy money center, when all of a sudden what people believed was money, money good, some derivative near money, what everyone was counting on to be able to turn into gold or silver or banknotes, all of a sudden they realized, so oh, this is no good. This is a mortgage-backed security, or this is an investment into the country of Poise, which doesn't even exist. And so it's no wonder then that globalization ended in 2008. Foreign direct investment has flatlined since 2008, since the global financial crisis. 
If you look at global trade, same thing, sideways. So money comes first, that leads to globalization. And in our case, the people that are, the banks that are creating money on which the global economy runs, find it way, way too risky to do so. And uh, we're all suffering for it. Okay, when will the next uh, euro dollar system crash happen, and why? <laughs> I was thinking Monday, Jeff. <laughs> I was I was going to say tomorrow, but yeah, but tomorrow's a Saturday, so maybe. Well, the euro dollar is open somewhere. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's I think it's a question we get a lot, right, Emil? I mean, everybody wants to know this thing doesn't seem to work. So when is it going to just fail? And the answer might be that it doesn't. It might be that we've witnessed a 14-year period where it's malfunctioned, but as I say, it's at least good enough to keep the lights on, so it kind of keeps going. And as I said earlier, there really is no plausible, realistic alternative to it. So even if it functions minimally and you know, occasionally in intermittent periods of crisis, it at least it's what we have, and it has shown the ability to at least continue itself for you know, almost a decade and a half now in this current uh, decrepit state. So it may be that the thing just doesn't fail, it might just be, it ends with a whimper. Maybe somebody, someday, some politicians become smart enough and say, hey, let's connect some of these dots here. We've got deflationary currency. As Emil said, globalization and money are tied together. What's going on? We have no global trade anymore. They start putting all of these things together and actually fix the system. That is possible. It could happen. So it may be that, you know, the this, this system, the euro dollar system doesn't just crash. Maybe it just continues on for a while and we get wise and it just ends in a whimper and something else takes its place. Now, that doesn't preclude the possibility of some kind of violent end, nor, which might be an equally troublesome case where we do identify that the euro dollar system is breaking down and that it is in everybody's interest around the world to replace it. But that replacement process is very tricky, very uncertain, and a lot of things can go wrong. As I say, where we are now in A going to a B, which is a better system, between A and B, a whole lot can go wrong. So it might be that the euro dollar system doesn't crash. It just comes into a whole lot of trouble as we try to get out of it and move into the next system, which may be, as you said, Valina, it might be regional currency blocks. Maybe that's the answer to this. Going back to a more historical boundary, we're more historical boundaries where we don't have a unified currency system throughout the entire world, might be not as efficient as the peak euro dollar, but still, maybe that will work better. But some, you know, there's always that possibility that we're transitioning from A to B that it, it, it gets to be violent, uh, a violent mess. So maybe that's really where the dangers lie. And when we actually realize what's wrong and start to fix it, not realizing that there's a, there's a whole lot that can go wrong in trying to fix it. And I don't want the audience to go to bed tonight thinking, oh, thank goodness, Jeff, that maybe it'll just continue and there won't be a crash. Because <laughs> right. that doesn't mean the system can't have an apoplectic fit as it has four times already, the global financial crisis, the European debt crisis, the Chinese foreign exchange reserves crisis, the deglobalization crises leading up to the, the fit in March 2020. Each of these was preceded by signs, signals in money markets that something was wrong in the euro dollar system, that there wasn't enough money being extended, enough credit, enough collateral wasn't available, money was getting tight. And it's a little bit like musical chairs. Chairs start being pulled back, maybe one, maybe another, and then all of a sudden two or three, 
it leads to a panic. And as Jeff and I have been talking about on our show, all this year, we have been seeing signs that we have seen four times before leading into one of these fits. So I would say money is getting tighter and the, uh, the future is less bright than bright. Jeff, what am I trying to say? It's concerning where we are yeah, right so now. Deflationary potential, which is never good. And, you know, to take what you just said even a step further that, you know, even if we don't have a crash, in some senses, a euro dollar crash would be the best outcome because mm. it would force everybody to say, let's fix this thing. If the system doesn't crash and continues on for another 15 years, that might actually be the worst case because then we're not only are we being robbed of economic vitality through the mechanism that Emil just said, Nobody has figured out the answer. If the, if the Eurodoll system malfunctions for another 15 years, that means nobody has connected all these dots. We haven't figured things out. And then what does the world look like politically and socially in that kind of a circumstance where the globalized economy becomes fragmented even more? People are even angrier. They don't know why the economies aren't performing like they used to be. You know, prosperity seems like a distant memory. Even economic booms are, you know, that's something our, our parents were talking about, not something that our children will. That creates all sorts of massive problems. So in some sense, in a very realistic sense, although as, as bad as it sounds, a crash might actually be the best option because then it would focus everybody's attention. It would create a sense of urgency. And that's what really, you know, to Emil and I share this, uh, share this uh, uh, viewpoint that, you know, 2008 and 2009 was a missed opportunity to have done this to have said, no, this is not subprime mortgages. This is a global Euro dollar breakdown and the system is not going to heal itself and fix itself. Certainly QE is not gonna do anything for it. So let's let's reform the thing now while everybody is, has focused on it, everybody realizes it needs to be done. Let's look at doing a monetary system that benefits the entire world and let's do it while we have the opportunity to do so and said, Central bankers and politicians around the world said, ah, don't worry about it. It was just subprime mortgages. We fixed everything and everybody goes back to sleep. So, you know, there, there's getting people's attention focused on the monetary problem. However, that happens is probably what we need to be looking for. That's what what's that's the best possible outcome here. Not another 15 year period where nobody has a clue what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, you already mentioned several times uh, central banks and that central banks uh, do not have a role uh, in the euro dollar system. But what is the future role of central banks of developed economies in your view? And are we going to end up at some point with a scenario where we would have uh, too central to fail systemic risks uh, in a parallel to the too big to fail uh, um, kind of uh, scenario of systemic uh, risks uh, coming out of the euro dollar system crash in 2007-2008? Well, you know, central banks, as we said, they have, they, they know that they're not really part of the euro dollar system. In fact, you know, they realize that there's this global dollar problem. They don't really understand it all that well, but they're, they're invested in expectations management, which is essentially trying to get people to believe that they've got everything covered. Don't think about these things because we'll take care of them. But as that has broken down, not just in the US, not just the Fed, the ECB is probably even better example, as it has failed in its mandates of creating growth and inflation or you know, modest inflation with low unemployment. You know, what has happened in central banks, Europe is the best example, 
is they've started to look at other things, right? We're not really a central bank. We do these QEs that's about pop psychology. So let's tackle climate change. Let's tackle resource allocation in a very political model. So central banks are becoming more and more politicized themselves, having ceded their core mandate, which as Emil and I say all the time, people need to realize that central banks aren't actually central banks, certainly not by the traditional definition. They're essentially political creatures that are involved in manipulating psychology, which makes them, you know, their evolution toward the political sphere makes perfect sense because that's what they actually do anyway. So the less they're able to affect the monetary system and the economy, the more that we should expect them to creep into other areas of society and politics, which is exactly what they're doing. Okay, then I would like to ask uh, as a final question, because we have a lot of questions from the audience and I really want to uh, ask these questions as well. What kind of systemic risks regarding the euro dollar uh, system keep you awake in the night? <laughs> what, is your, what is your list of the three most significant ones? How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> All the time in the world, given yeah. that we are going to move towards another 15 years of uh, Eurodollar system. Valina, I wish it was, hey, let's, this is the one thing that we could fix and then we'd be everything would be fine. It's really what, you know, what is right with the system, not what's wrong with it, what's right with the system. It's, it's just... There's too, many in, in, there's too many inherent contradictions in how it operates. And it, it depends upon, in some ways, it came to depend upon in the pre-crisis era, banks just being stupid and insane, doing ridiculous things. That's the amount of credit growth and risk-taking that were required to keep the system advancing at such a rate that it appeared to be stable. So the more unstable it actually became, the more stable it seemed to be. And that's just an inherently contradictory state that's never going to work. So in some senses, we still have that problem. We still have the need for banks to take risks that they clearly don't want to take because they've realized the downside of them taking those risks. You end up like Bear Stearns or you end up nationalized like any number of banks in the UK or across Germany and Europe. There's a real downside to having done what they used to do, but the world depends upon banks taking risks that they don't want to take. So there's always this inherent contradiction, this inherent sort of tug of war between what we need banks to do and what they're not going to do, what they might like to do if they could. And the way that kind of works out in, ter in terms of the plumbing or some of the details, for one thing, there's a collateral shortage and repo, derivatives, these are very important parts of redistributing and creating and, and making sure euro dollar monetary resources flow around the world that depend upon collateral. And collateral, because you know, again, we're in this, in, this environment where risk-taking and risk aver or risk aversion is more likely than risk-taking. Everybody wants to own, everybody can own and only use the most safest and liquid instruments. And there's just not enough of them. So we have a collateral shortage that becomes an extreme shortage during these Euro-dollar periods that, that Emil just referenced, these four Euro-dollar issues. That again, we're starting to see signs in the collateral system right now that suggest not only are safe assets in short supply, they're becoming increasingly in short supply, especially as the US government restricts the availability of something like treasury bills, which are the best of the best of the best types of collateral. So underlying all of these things, we've got this, this inherent problem that's manifested in something like a collateral shortage that as we've seen time and again, becomes a primary mode of failure. When the collateral, collateral shortage becomes an outright collateral scramble or a collateral panic, as we saw in March of 2020, 
that leads to all of the big liquidity consequences that lead, lead to really bad problems around the world. So top of my list is collateral as usual. Uh, and there are other things as well, just that go along with the, the uh, money dealers around the world, these Euro dollar banks, their, their intermittent risk aversion that's driven by any number of things. My biggest concern is very broad and something that Jeff writes about often. It's that uh, we're in the 1930s equivalent, and if we don't fix it, it may lead to a 1940s equivalent because a, an economic pie that's growing is uh, very satisfying. It's delicious, and it brings everyone to the table, and you can get along with strange people from strange cultures who say strange things. No problem. Everyone's making money. But when the global economic pie is barely growing or not growing at all, well, then you start looking at those strange people and you, you say, maybe it's their fault that this is happening and you can make good cases that it is their fault. And then it leads from there. So we've switched from uh, an era of cooperation to one of competition. And the longer this sort of depression continues, the, uh, the more concerning, the more stressful it gets. Is this uh, the most uh, significant geopolitical link? Uh, I mean, this analogy to the 1930s, and we know how it ended uh, with, the, as uh, some analysts say, the Great World War. Uh, I mean, given that it's not, uh, it hasn't been consisting of two, but of one continuous World War. Yeah, I, again, I think that's exactly right. This, this, this is the story nobody knows. And that's why it's such a big political risk is because something is wrong. And I think most people around the world, Europe and the United States, wherever you are, China, emerging markets, you realize something's not right. Something changed. We don't know what it is. And that's, that's what's causing a lot of political extremism and social breakdowns because we know something's not right. Something is very different here. But we can't say what it is. Nobody has any answers. And all that does is feed more and more political extreme, more political extremism, because those on the polar opposites claim to have all the answers. And when you're the only one who claims to have an answer, when everybody's looking for answers, you tend to create, you tend to create a large enough following that it can become a, a big issue. So, you know, for us, it's, we have a monetary breakdown that explains the economic breakdown, but since it's an offshore shadow money type of breakdown, the fact that nobody knows it's actually there, let alone that it's breaking down, that's really, that's the geopolitical question is, step one is identify the problem, and then step two, do something about it. We haven't even come close to step one yet. <laughs> We have a lot of questions from the audience. Uh, maybe we can uh, try to address uh, some of them, uh, depending on, of course, on your uh, time and availability. And then we can also arrive at some conclusions. So first question is, why do you need expanding money supply to grow the economy? Uh, in addition, there is a question, why can't increasing productivity, deflation and the visibility of modern digital money take care of a growing economy? Well, those are two separate questions. And taking These the are second two separate one, questions. Yeah, yes. this, this, very different question. Because, you know, this, taking the second one first, there is a difference between productive deflation, which is what capitalism and free markets are supposed to generate, which is mass production economies of scale where prices come down and in, 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 uh, all sorts of new goods and innovations and technologies, which is a very good thing. 
That kind of productive deflation is what we want to see, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a breakdown of the monetary system that creates another type of disinflation or deflationary environment that interrupts free markets and capitalist societies. It, it halts their economic advance because getting to the first question, we do need monetary resources because there's always this mismatch between supply of money and demand for money. And there's usually what's supposed to stand in between those is a high degree of intermediation, which is what the banking system is supposed to do and what the euro dollar did very well in its earliest days. It matched the supply of money with the demand for money and legitimate productive demand for money. Now, where it got where it went wrong was that it stopped the intermediation function broke down and it just decided to flood the world with money all over the place. But in a, in a ideal type environment or a better scenario than what we saw in the late Euro dollar period, there is a rising need for money and you want a dynamic system to be able to match efficiently a match the supply of money with the demand for money. That's really what we're talking about here is elasticity, where it's not necessarily money needs to grow an X number of dollars or at, at, at an X percentage of a rate that just money needs to more, uh, more uh, beneficially match supply with demand. Mm -hmm. Emil, do you want to touch upon or there are plenty of other questions like if you don't want Let's to... go to another question. Let's, Let's go, go to another, to another one. Isn't, isn't the inversion in the Eurodollar futures curve maybe predicting except of a possible global depression less freedom when you think of the rising power of governments, regulations, etc.? I don't know if it's predicting a depression. I would say we're already in a depression. We've been in a one for 14 years, but I think it's predicting that the future is concerning and this gigantic market believes that the Federal Reserve will likely be forced to be lowering rates in the future, not too distant future, because something will go wrong in the economy. So that's what the Euro dollar uh, curve inversion is predicting. And uh, freedom and liberty, I guess that's on uh, the retreat right now. That seems to be the pendulum is swinging the opposite way. Um, but I don't know how to link the two topics together. Maybe Jeff or you, Valina, can do that for me. Well, I would say, Emil, is that the, uh, the perverse part of a deflationary, disinflationary environment that the malfunctioning euro dollar system has uh, invoked which the Eurodollar curve, the Eurodollar futures curve inversion is an indication of this rising deflationary potential is it has created this perverse uh, sort of uh, prog process where the market, because of the lack of liquidity, lack of money worldwide, it, and as we said, collateral and uh, safe assets shortages, the market, the monetary system, the banking system, the real economy demands safe and liquid instruments, which is unfortunately, government bonds. And so governments have essentially uh, taken advantage of this deflationary wave, the rising prices in government bonds, because the governments are the only game in town, the private monetary system, private credit system have broken down. So the threat to liberty, the threat to, pol to political uh, constituencies is the fact that governments have grown exponentially in relationship to their own economies, simply because they've been able to. The, the fact that government debt is at such is so highly prized and at such high prices has allowed them to expand their footprint across not just economic life but also all manner of social parts of the, uh, the of your life as well. Governments have grown because they think that's the right thing to do, 
even just in you know in broad in broad very you know specific uh, or non-specific fiscal stimulus terms you know think about japan for the last 30 years that's what governments do so they've taken advantage of this deflationary environment that's presented to them by this euro dollar breakdown and again they don't have any answers for it so they just expand the government footprint all over the place not just once but continuously because it never works the euro dollar system never advances and that's really what the the major threat to especially free markets and free economies and free systems are is the fact that governments think that they're doing good by doing more of what they do and believing that hey the market isn't rejecting our debt as we issue more and more debt so let's do even more of what we're doing anyway even though it doesn't seem to work that i think is how you connect the deflationary environment the silent depression as emil always says with the growing influence the growing uh, intervention of especially federal government authorities all over the world not just uh, not just in one place or another it's pretty much everywhere and again it's we don't know what's wrong we don't know how to we don't know how to explain what's going wrong so you can, in, in one sense you can understand why this has been the case well i don't i'm not sure i really want to elaborate on this because it will take another hour but let's say that uh, this cycle of globalization is in my view a little bit different from the previous cycles why because for the very first time and i think that we all will agree on that uh is that we end up ended up with a global system that has turned into being a capitalist one. During the previous cycles of globalization, where there was a global power, which was also, of course, able to connect to other parts of the world, the model, of course, of governance was not the one being on a capitalist system. So in a sense, this, of course, now global capital is uh, has been actually spread to every part of the world. Uh, take China as an example, take Russia as an example, everyone we had in the previous globalization cycle, an anti-capitalist model, an anti-capitalist second superpower. You should consider this as a very important, uh, at least in my research, it's a very important factor. Why? Because in this uh, globalization cycle, we also uh, witnessed uh, that there have been losers in the process. Uh, take the developed economies uh, into consideration. And once again, you see the middle, uh, the middle class as the biggest loser um, of the process. In a sense, this will have an effect on the rising of many, many uh, populist movements that we've also observed in the 1930s. Take nationalism into consideration, take Marxism into consideration. All of this is now on the rise once again, except for the fact that we no longer have this middle class, which has been the strongest pillar of democratic systems uh, throughout the last uh, 70 years, since the end of the Second World War until, until more or less the great financial crisis. On the other side of the coin, take the Asian uh, giants that are now on the rise, uh, China, India, they have very different uh, models of governance. We will observe a middle class on the rise, millions of people who will also develop what political demands. And of course, on the top of the system, these are elites which have very different 
um, ideas about governance. Uh, so in a sense, uh, China, of course, being the excellent case of uh, kind of an authoritarian rule of governance is going to make sure that this, uh, you know, emerging middle class does not end up with uh, similar political demands as it was the case in the United States and in Europe following the Second World War. And all of this, of course, um, result uh, in this kind of um, situation where uh, certain freedoms and rights are being actually limited, but for different reasons. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's really what you just said, there's, we have the problem of the middle class in the United States and Europe and around the developed world, but you also have the problem of the middle class that developed from the, uh, the, the, the flow of, of globalization around the developing world. And yes, the lack of the deglobalization de since 2008, the, the lack of economic growth is a threat to both because now you have middle class and is shrinking middle class in the US, shrinking middle class in the Europe that are wondering where did everything go? But you also have this rise of the middle class and all of these Asian emerging market economies that are, that are going to want that middle class lifestyle to continue. And if, get, if there's any sort of threat to that middle class lifestyle continuing or prolifer proliferating, that's going to become a very big political question for the emerging economies as well. And so we've essentially had, as you, I think you, you said it right, Valina, that we've had this amazing upset to the world order, really going back, we're going back to World War I and World War II. The post-war era really scrambled everything around in ways that I don't think anybody has really appreciated, especially over the last 30 or so years since the breakdown of the Soviet Union, as well as, as you said, China's embrace of their limited capitalist phase that created all of this sort of uh, volatility. And for a while, it seemed to work really well and it seemed to, be, to produce a lot of great prosperity. And I think the, the, the question that's on the minds of the middle class in the developed world, as well as the developing world is, will this type of prosperity or will this type of system continue? And if, if it doesn't, if there's a threat to it, what are we gonna do about it? And that's really the political and social upset, I think that, that we tie together with a monetary system, globalization, economic growth, and the lack of answers that are coming from political authorities who don't really understand why or how globalization actually worked and what was really going on and really what's going on now with the world deglobalizing, lack of cooperation. And if you can't provide answers, as you said, Valina, you've got nationalism on the right, you've got communism on the left. If this is a boom, if this is the best that capitalism can do because nobody seems to have any answers, then why not try some socialism or some other extreme form of, of, because we had a middle-class lifestyle and it seems to be threatened or going away, let's try something different. For anyone in the audience who would like to get more of this sort of treatment on the middle-class and how it's fitting in the macroeconomic picture, I have a book recommendation, uh, Trade Wars Are Class Wars by uh, Michael Pettis and Matthew Klein. And it addresses many of the topics we just discussed. So there are some more questions, gentlemen. Would you like to address them as well? Or, I mean, it's really, I don't really want to push your uh, patience, uh, but uh, there are more questions coming. I suppose that uh, you really touched some nerves uh, with uh, what you've been uh, discussing uh, in the last uh, 60 minutes. Absolutely. My time, you know, look. yes. It's just going to say, you know, we realize that what we say is contrary to what people know, what they've been taught, what, what gets reinforced every day. So, 
you know, the more opportunity we have to clarify ourselves or at least, you know, answer some questions or at least point people in the right direction, we're, I'm happy to do it. I know Emil is more than happy to do it in every occasion that we get. So let's, let's keep them coming. Okay. So there is, of course, a question. It was, uh, <laughs> it was predictable, at least in my view, that uh, there will be a question on uh, the future global currency. And there is a question related to the IMF, uh, IMF's uh, CDR, whether you could consider, would consider actually IMF's CDRs as the next global currency, or perhaps uh, a digital currency launched by a central bank what is your view on that the sdrs by the imf are supposed to be a liquidity format to help supplement the current system but they're basically worthless um, we could get into why that is but essentially the imf sdr has the same problem that everybody other any other potential uh, competing answer does which is what we said before there's no infrastructure for it. It's simply an accounting fiction that's maintained at the national level, and it has very limited, in fact, no real practical use. So if you want to use SDRs as sort of a competing currency, you're, again, you're starting from scratch. You need to build a new internet. You need to, do, need to build a new internet that trades in SDRs, and th that's really the task before it. And because of that, it's not really a, a, not really a realistic alternative, and it really wasn't meant to be. It was sort of meant to be a supplement to the, to the Bretton Woods system, and then, of course, that got changed really pretty much as soon as SDRs were, were inter introduced. And the other part of it, central bank digital currencies are not really native digital currencies. They're sort of central banks digitizing the way they do things now. For example, think about you know the Federal Reserve or the ECB having digital electronic accounts with not just banks, but also individual individuals. It doesn't really change the, the, uh, the makeup of the currency system or the arrangement of how the currency system actually works on a fundamental level. It just changes the appearance of how people are transacting with the system as it already is. Now you can see why central banks would wanna develop something like that because then that, 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 that uh, it sort of uh, maintains the status quo where everybody thinks the central banks are central banks, but it's not really a replacement nor is it intended to be a replacement to the actual monetary system on a very detailed or a very uh, fundamental level. The Bank of England in 2014 wrote a paper where they estimated that the, the money in, in circulation in the British economy was created 97% by private banks and 3% by central banks. So if we had a central bank digital currency, that's fine, but uh, is it's still reliant, at least right now, on private banks participating and having a risk appetite to expand and to lend and to create credit collateral and money into the system. Is that gonna change because we've changed the denomination to SDR or something else? Mm. Interesting, also given the fact that uh, China has launched uh, the experiment with the digital currency in several big uh, cities, including Beijing. Um, so it's interesting to also uh, well, take this into consideration, what you've just said. I just wrote about this today, which is that central bank digital currencies, when you really take it from the perspective of what central banks are interested in, it's not about building a better currency system. It's about increasing the level of surveillance. It's about increasing the level of government's ability to track what's going on in the real economy. Some for you know noble purposes, but a lot that's probably more nefarious, especially with the Chinese and what they're attempting to do. They're essentially attempting to create a better monitoring system. 
So it's not about a better currency that, that's more useful to the economy in real in small e economic terms. It's about more of a, a, a better, what they hope is a more uh, efficient or more a much better top-down approach to using money as a means of control and a means of influence. And I don't think that's what would... most people think that, uh, sorry, I, mean, I'll just, I don't think that's mm -hmm. what most people have in mind when they think about a digital currency. And I would draw a distinction between advanced economy money centers and central banks and emerging market central banks, which are much more central because the money they create is important to their local economies. In the world, no one is running to create yuan right now or some emerging market currency. The real money in making money is in these advanced economy money centers and currencies. So it's possible for a central bank to be a central bank and create money and control money supply and money demand more so in emerging markets. So maybe, maybe there, but for the advanced economy and for the global economy, which runs on Euro dollars, it's, uh, you need the private banks, at least the way the system's set up now, to buy in. Literally. <laughs> well, uh, final, a little bit provocative question, but uh, since we've, yeah, you are used to it. I don't see a problem uh, asking it. So how can we have uh, a flourishing economy when the higher interest uh, rate will inevitably cause a crash in the housing and stock market? You want to take it, Emil? The easy higher answer... interest. You go, go ahead. ahead. If you've got... No, no, you take it. Right. We'll, we'll both... We'll, you go first. We'll both do this one. A higher interest rate is not set by central banks. The central banks react to the market. The market sets a higher interest rate and the higher interest rate represents greater return in the private economy. So the market would be saying, we are optimistic about the future. We believe you can make money in the real economy. And therefore these sovereign bonds, they better pay us a lot more, a higher interest rate because why would we put our money in these safe liquid instruments when we can make real money in the economy? So higher interest rates would be something welcome. It would suggest the economy is expanding and growing and people can get jobs and wages are increasing. Jeff. I think that's nothing more to add there. Just that, you know, higher interest rates are normal. Higher interest rates are good. They're not bad. And even if, we, even if transitioning from low rates to higher rates means that the housing sector falls off a little bit, so what? Because those higher interest rates represent, as Emil just said, the economy legitimately booming. So even if there are some interest rate, or interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy that maybe suffer a little bit in the transition to higher rates, overall the system is doing really well so that it can easily absorb higher rates. In fact, it wants to absorb higher rates because that, as Emil just said, that means the economy is, is generating all sorts of risk-adjusted, very good opportunities. That's what we want to see. So low rates are a sign that things are doing bad. High rates are a sign, or at least nominal, nominally normal rates are a sign that things are going in the right direction. We want higher rates. We want rates to, we want interest rates to rise. We want the market to say things are going really well. We, we're now going to price our risk-adjusted opportunities according to all of these really good things going on. So that's really what we want to see. The, the higher rates are absolutely where we want to go. The implicit assumption in that question is that the central authorities are setting rates, and perhaps they are in emerging markets.
But what Jeff and I, our whole show is, no, it's in reverse. Yes, the central authorities set a rate, one of the money rates, but there are many others. And if you would weigh them all together, it's the market that determines the rates. And then the central authorities follow, even though they would never admit to that. Okay, gentlemen, we've learned that the euro dollar system is not the perfect one. It has its uh, failures, it uh, has its vulnerabilities, but there is a saying that even a bad system will always beat a good person. So in a sense... <laughs> I've never heard that, that's a good one. <laughs> in a sense, I think that we probably will end up with a scenario where uh, if we are going to have the same conversation in five or 10 years from now, hopefully, We'll, we'll be still uh, facing some of these vulnerabilities, uh, but the system will be here to stay. That's a In fair five conclusion. Years, yeah. Yeah. In five years, yes. And we'll be, we'll be sad and frightened. But in 10 years, also, yes, probably. But we'll be optimistic and hopeful. And it will be, the worst will be behind us. Book yeah, it. That's I think a guarantee. That's that's a message Emil and I want to send to most people is that, you know, it sounds doom and gloom. It sounds awful. I mean, we're talking about depression, deflation, monetary breakdown, disinflation, all these bad things. But human nature has shown an incredible capacity to, number one, be stupid. But number two, <laughs> wake itself up at the right time and fix these problems. Eventually, it becomes, you know, eventually enough things go right. And eventually... You know, even if the Eurodollar system is still malfunctioning 10 years from now, I think it would, uh, what Emil was saying is that by then someone will have, will have figured it out and will have a better idea of how to fix it. And once we do, I am absolutely convinced. I know Emil is probably even more optimistic than I am. Once we do fix this monetary system, the future is incredibly bright because we will have decades upon decades of unmet and un unrequited demand and opportunity that's been pent up artificially that will be all of a sudden let loose. Innovations that we haven't really taken advantage of because of this deglobalization and lack of economic growth that it will all at once be set free. And I think what we're looking at once we get the monetary answer correct is uh, an environment very much like maybe the 1950s or even middle, middle of the 19th century where you just have an, a, a massive global a wave of, of uh, economic growth and prosperity. So when we, if we do it right, there is an incredibly good future ahead of us. We just don't know when that will be. And if, because there is another <laughs> saying, I forgot who said, uh, I forgot who said this quote, but we should never underestimate human stupidity, both on personal and on collective level. Uh, humans are prone to engage in self-destructive activities. And I suppose we can sum it up uh, also for the Eurodollar system, the way you actually outlined it uh, for us in the last uh, 70 minutes, uh, which now makes us even feel uh, worse than before this uh, 70 minutes. <laughs> that's, the, that's the curse that we have. <laughs> We're going to depress you as well as the monetary system. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for tuning in, for participating in this uh, digital talk. I really do appreciate uh, your insights, your analysis, your assessment, and I allow myself to invite you, not in five years, maybe in a year or so, to also uh, discuss uh, the 
developments regarding these and other uh, systems and specifically uh, this uh, kind of quite quite uh, amazing cycle of uh, uh, global system transformation where nobody, no matter if in your field or in my field, has an idea uh, about the final outcome, which makes it so exciting. I propose we do it in less than a year and we do it on site in Vienna. I'm there. <laughs> then or we in can India, read, right? Uh, we can read all together the Raven of Zurich uh, because mm. he has been in, uh, based in Vienna, the author, and uh, can also discuss uh, the next uh, stage of hopefully not uh, another world war, but certainly the connections between the global financial monetary uh, system and the connects to the political world. Thank you very much for being with me. Thank you for having us, Melina. We really appreciate it. The same.